Welcome to the TMI Podcast. This is Isaac. And Josh. And William. And I have a question for William today. William, how would you define emotional intelligence? Defining emotional intelligence. Okay, well, I didn't look up the dictionary definition. But um, I think how I've come to understand it from my own life personally, like there's lots of like, you know, psychological definitions, like why it's important. But for me, it's my own capacity to recognize my emotions or recognize that I don't know what emotion I'm feeling and then the capacity to react to it or not react. That's how I define emotional intelligence. That's a good definition, I feel like. What are some traits that emotionally intelligent people have? Um, I would say mindful. I'm in a meditation class right now and a lot of what they talk about there sometimes is just taking the time to, well, let's like talk about anger, right? If you get really mad, if you kind of like remember your own experiences of anger, like you get stuck in this zone of, of, of fury and like you almost have to have a moment where you like snap out. Mm. Um, so I think mindfulness is that is the muscle of snapping out and the practice of being able to, oh, I'm in this emotional state that I don't understand and recognize. Let me take a moment to just sit and like, you know, specifically with meditation and mindfulness, it's about experiencing the emotion and letting yourself be okay with the fact that you're having an emotion and then taking the time to just feel it, let it exist, and then just like proceed with the next step. That's the kind of the principle of like, you know, it's like agency, acting versus being acted upon. I would say mindfulness and a big part of emotional intelligence is that you aren't being acted upon by the emotion, but the emotion doesn't just get so much hold of you that you're kind of like out of control of your actions. Mm-hmm. Did you say there's anything different, different? Well, I mean, this is a purely semantic question, I'll just tell you what I think rather than make okay. this a question, but uh, I feel like emotional intelligence and maturity seem pretty synonymous. Like when I... No, yeah, when you said maturity, I was like, that's, yeah. Yeah, maturity, like the people, when you mention characteristics like that, I'm like, oh, these are the kind of people who are mature in my life. Seems like they have an emotional intelligence capacity. Yeah. And I've, I've heard, uh, I want to get into what psychology is all about and at some point in this podcast, one of my questions, but okay. uh, generally... I've heard things like spatial intelligence, emotional intelligence, um, like analytical intelligence. So we've classified intelligence in different ways before. Like spatial intelligence is my ability. It's like a, a you ever heard of kinesthetic sense? Your ability to see and understand where your body is at a yeah. given time. Athleticism. Yeah, athleticism. Athleticism is kind of in its own type of intelligence. You know, that's that's okay. one psychological theory is. Uh, it's not even a theory. It's just a semantic division. It's if you're athletic, you're you could be classified as you, you have a a strong kinesthetic sense. You have a strong connection with your body. You uh, you have that type of intelligence. And yeah. analytical intelligence is, for example, a Newtonian, Einstein type Those of, kinds of guys. the people who can analyze things and you know have good deductive knowledge, uh, and are good at analyzing things. So there's different kinds of intelligence. And I feel like. Uh, one reason that this theory, this semantic division exists in psychology is to kind of redefine intelligence. And I actually think this is one reason this is an important discussion to have because traditionally when we think of intelligence, we think of like, you know, a guy with glasses <laughs> in your glasses. <laughs> you both have glasses. Do you wear contacts? I do wear contacts. So you've got glasses. So too. I do have glasses as well. But he's in your class and he's like kind of nerdy and he makes really good grades and right, he's right. just like good at problem solving basically. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our limited definition of intelligence. And I actually do think that is limiting. Like 
I think it would be beautiful if we called attention to every kind of intelligence that existed. Yeah, it's very valid. And gave them their own uh, kind of like space. Like you see a display of emotional intelligence, you're like, that was a display of intelligence just as much as this person in this class solving this really difficult organic chemistry problem was displaying intelligence. The hard thing is you can't see what they're responding to. In emotional yeah. intelligence? Right, like you can't see what someone else's more subjective. Right. What, their, what their internal emotional state is and what their, you know, because with, with what we call, like what we have is like scholastic intelligence, which is what you were talking about. You have like a problem written on a board or something, something that's rationally perceivable to everyone else in the room, and then they see how the person responds to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh-huh. we can't see people's internal emotional states and conditions and then how they choose to you know so you have to see the difficulty of the problem would be is kind of what you're saying right it's difficult it's difficult even to recognize when someone is is practicing emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. because we don't see what they're responding to yeah i would say yeah it's difficult to see what like the actual emotions are that happening but i think it is easy to recognize when someone is emotionally intelligent you could just that's true we have like a maturity radar i feel like yeah there's like this social understanding of like, oh, this person understands like what's going on right now. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I do think that's that's a, like, that's a sense that I have is, I, I think there's a biological reason for this. <laughs> I, I always talk about this. Uh, I think it's been it's it's an evolutionary advantage to detect who is wise and mature in your tribe, to propagate your existence in the future. So like if you even if, amongst animals, even amongst yeah. animals, like I think it happens in primates. I would imagine, although it only happens in higher. It has to happen. So emotional intelligence, I think, it's like yeah, it only exists in a social context. Uh, yeah. So emotional intelligence has no. Uh, it, it. I think it, there is some meaning because I think you can find a higher degree of emotional intelligence in solitude, but I think. Uh, there's no way that if you're not a socially interacting organism that emotional intelligence really manifests. It, it has no evolutionary be- benefit. Yeah. But in a social species, and for example, in most species, in sexually reproducing species, uh, males basically overwhelmingly, 99%. In 99% of species, the male that passes on his genes is bigger and stronger than the rest. In 1%, they can be bigger and stronger or more charismatic and intelligent. And that only happens in high function things like primates, dolphins, and animals like that. Because huh. so suddenly, they have like an actual character, right? Like. Suddenly, being charismatic, persuasive, diplomatic, and intelligent can also help your, you and your people survive, mm-hmm. in just as much or more than if you were bigger and stronger. Because when you're the socially interacting animal and you can interact with the environment around you in an intelligent way, suddenly that becomes advantageous. And that's that's uh, it's. Uh, Exponential. So humans experience this way more frequently than any other. Right, I was going to say. So uh, in humans, I think we have have a sense developed where we say, oh, this guy, this is a diplomat among us. And if he was the guy in charge of us negotiating our banana and fur skin trade with the tribe next to us, then we'd probably get even better than what we asked for. Because he's really interpersonal, he's good at making relationships, and... uh, He's not going to freak out and, like, kill someone. You right. know, he's not going to freak out and make a horrible decision. He'd be a good leader. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, – in the Venn diagram, leadership, maturity, and emotional intelligence share a lot in the center as well, I would, I would think. But anyways, I think there's a reason that we can detect maturity. And I do agree uh, that it might be more difficult to see how difficult is the problem. What if your life was easier? Would it be more emotionally intelligent? But I still think there's a type of uh, – 
universal trace, mm-hmm. the universal marker of. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have some questions about specific things about emotional intelligence that I can go ahead and ask. <laughs> sure. Uh, let me pull this up. So, I would say one trait of being emotional, emotionally intelligent is to accept responsibility for your mistakes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then another one is to forgive yourself well. I think emotionally intelligent people can forgive themselves. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to give a quick rundown of how those truths can exist synonymously. Like, how can someone okay. be really good at understanding the, the severity of their mistake, but also be really good at forgiving themselves and moving on? Yeah. This is a super relevant topic, especially like where we're going to school and, and in the church, um, because we have this like perfectionism complex. Um, and, you know, you said the capacity to um, recognize that you made a mistake, but still forgive be, yourself. Forgive yourself. Yeah, and that's something where we were really not good at, um, especially for where we're at right now. But in general, um, we live in a world that's also really results oriented, right? If you look at romantic movies, you know, you see a whole romance in an hour and a half. Or if you look at um, success stories, right, even on Instagram, they're, they're really quick stories. Right. And you see this like 15 second video of someone saying, oh, in two years I was able to make this change in my life, but you see it in 15 seconds. Right. So I guess we, that's like the first problem that we kind of have to address is the fact that we just, we can't be so results oriented, I think is a big part of it to have both of those exist synonymously. Um, because you are like, it's just a fact of life that you are going to make mistakes. Um, and I think the key to having those coexist, well, I think first off comes with life experiences, just seeing that happen of just like learning to laugh at yourself mm. and, oh, okay, I made this really bad mistake, but the only way to go is forward. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As far as how, mm, I would say the way that I've, I'm not perfect at practicing it, but the way I've found it to exist in my life, um, it are just by continuing to learn from mistakes and continuing to choose to go forward and not something that my parents taught me a lot was, um, especially my dad was just do whatever the next right thing is. Don't get caught up in like what's happening right now because you can, when you make a mistake, um, ruminating happens really quickly, right. downward spiral. You're just worried and you're freaking out. Um, but if you just take the time to do the next right thing, whatever is the next step, that can really take you out of this state of, of inaction and feeling like, oh, I've made a mistake, I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. And that really does put you in this forward mindset of, okay, I've made a mistake, but I can be patient with myself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one big thing in my life that I've seen help me have that dual existence. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that and experience, and also just, <clears throat> I don't know. It's a part of my belief also that a part of just the atonement of Jesus Christ and the faith that I practice, that that's the whole purpose of why we're here on earth is that we are going to make mistakes and we have to choose to keep trying to be better. Mm-hmm. And that uh, my faith in Christ just gives me a foundation of knowing that it's going to work out. So, yeah. I think one thing I... One way I think that we succeed in simultaneously recognizing our shortcomings and yet not, how did you put it, not, not hating ourselves for it, you know, mm-hmm. learning to <clears throat> improve is, kind of relates to a larger 
question I wanted to ask, kind of this metaphysical idea, like, does emotion belong to the body or to the soul? Is it, mm, is it somatic? Great. Is it psychological? Is it psychosomatic? Probably I think the answer is that it's psychosomatic because, right. you know, like someone both. who experiences anxiety, that's all throughout your body, not right. just in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of the time it comes down to attaching the, the misdeed to the body and, and reasserting the dominance of the soul. Um, saying, you know, this was... So I think an example of this, um, a quote from Nietzsche here, and I hope I haven't shared this one before. Um, <laughs> it's from, uh, in, in Thus Spake there, Zarathustra, um, one of his, his... It's built into like a bunch of little parables, and one of them is called The Pale Criminal. And Nietzsche is really, really adamant against people who are half-hearted, in-between, non-committal. Um, and, and that's condemned in the Bible, too, you know, the mm-hmm. whole lukewarmness thing. Right. Um, but so he, he, says, he says here, Enemy you shall say, but not villain. Sick you shall say, but not scoundrel. Fool you shall say, but not sinner. And, of course, he's very anti-moral, and he wants to break down morality. But I think it's a, an important idea to... To be able to attach weaknesses and and misdeeds and, and shortcomings to at least partially to the body and to a fallen world and recognizing uh-huh. the the circumstances that we're operating in, and then the important thing is to not condemn the higher being, the soul, mm. permanently for this. So I th- I think that's one way in which emotional intelligence operates is to be able to. I mean, in, in all of its manifestations, what it's really about is recognizing the situations and the constraints in which you're operating. And it is an assertion of agency. It doesn't give you unlimited choice. Like, there are some emotions that you have to experience, and you right. can experience them in healthy ways, or you can experience them in unhealthy right. ways. They have to run their course. But you recognize the, the array of options that are open to you, and you're able to make an intelligent and agential choice within those constraints. That's an interesting idea. I thought about dualism. This was General Conference weekend. And there's lots of dualist, uh, dichotomous uh, ways of thinking. For example, Elder Bednar spoke about, uh, like, it's there's the war. It's our spirit versus our body. And we, we, get, we get this a lot in Scripture. Uh, the natural man, the way we say it, carnal. Those words are used frequently in Scripture. And so this is an interesting... Uh, so, basically, I think this is a little problematic in some ways. I don't think it's a, a horrible idea, uh, but I think we can certainly manipulate it and make it militant against our own bodies. So, like, we uniquely in our faith tradition believe that the body is also divine mm-hmm. and that the body is good uh-huh. and that there's things that are wrong with it. For example, it can die right now, but eventually we just get this body back in a better form. Right. So that's really interesting. And we definitely have that. But do we internalize it so much? I mean, we seem to act as if there's the Jiminy Cricket, you know, that tells us the things that are good to do. And if we listen to the Jiminy Cricket every time, then we're in a great position. But does our body also ever tell us to do something good? I think your body definitely does tell you to do things yeah. that are good. Mm-hmm. In fact, your body tells you to do things that I think are divine and wonderful. Uh, but if we continue to divide, you know, make this huge gap between... There's the spirit that's good and the body, and the body bad. that's bad, then we've condemned our body. 
We're not mm-hmm. supposed to condemn our body, I don't think. I think no, yeah. we, need to, we need to respect it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's super, super profound. And that, that really is true that sometimes we have such a mindset of, of that the spiritual is so important to us that we focus on the spirit more than like how good the body also is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I had a couple other thoughts of like how to have this perspective. Um, we, I, think, I think pride is a big problem. Um, obviously, right? That's like classic. Yes, we know it's a problem. But in the sense that I'm thinking of um, is that we forget that we're literally, our, our existence is an entire existence of learning. Mm-hmm. And we get comfortable and we get to these places where we understand what's going on enough that we forget that we're learning. So when we have like these mostly like unintelligent experiences or I just make that made that up, I guess. I don't know if that counts, but <laughs> um, when we have these experiences that are hard and difficult, we are uncomfortable and it's unfortunate for, we, we just see it in a really bad point of view when we're literally just toddlers, like the entire time we're mm-hmm. going through life, everyone is figuring it out. <laughs> Uh, from the movie Incredibles, you know, when she's flying the plane and she's like, right in the first movie, she's like, oh, everybody's just like trying to get their cup of coffee, like at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I that think that's like a dumb example, but that's how I sometimes view the world is everybody is always going through something and always figuring it out. No one's got it figured out. Mm-hmm. No one does. Except for Jesus. He had it figured out. <laughs> you know? So I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's another key, um, I guess, idea. Mm-hmm. that would help someone who's struggling to feel like that I don't know I think it's something hopeful that's yeah. what I thought of it that is hopeful okay this this, uh, this is a uh, unique question that came to my mind but so I believe you that everyone is learning but I don't think I get I do not perceive that frequently in fact right. I more often perceive that people around me have got it figured out, and I don't. You know? Yeah, that, that is the perception, yeah. And I feel like that's pretty that's normal for people, mm-hmm. uh, and I think especially in a results, you know, all these things we could, I'd love to point back at historical reasons and sociological reasons why we have formed a culture of results that has to do with technology, has to do with right. the Industrial Revolution, has to do with so many different things, factors in our particular unit of society, because it's not the same everywhere. Right. I'd like to talk about... Uh, some Eastern traditions that I think practice really healthy parts of emotional intelligence that we've kind of lost halfway around the world. Uh, but is there, uh, what can we do about the illusion that the people around us are doing so much better than we are? And because my natural inclination is actually, I think, the most unhealthy thing to do, which is to say, well, I'll just pretend like I'm doing everything right as well. You know, because like if everybody else is doing everything right, my tendency to be authentic, my tendency to be uh, transparent about the things that I'm struggling with, the things that to be say, oh, this is the thing I'm learning because of this struggle that I have decreases substantially. Mm-hmm. What can I do to help that effort? I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but it's hard. <laughs> I think the answer is to actually get to know people. That was one of the things that popped into my mind. I think too. that part of the reason that we have this perception is because we don't actually know people very well. We have very superficial relationships, yeah. partially because of social media and, and other things. And, and that, of course, exacerbates the problem in its own way because of how people present themselves. But I think as you actually get to know a person, 
especially someone who you might think has it all worked out, what you'll find is that you stop idolizing them, but you actually start loving them mm -hmm. as you come to see their imperfections. Mm -hmm. And I bet it'd be super interesting if you just do like a stand on a corner and ask people if they think they've got it together, like 90 to 100% of the people will be like, no, I don't right. feel like I have it together and everyone else around me seems like they do. And the 1% is just trying to convince themselves of it. <laughs> yeah, that's what, yeah. I think, I think that would be the absolute reality. Mm -hmm. I think if we had a lot of people of all kinds of demographics that could participate in this conversation would tell you that I don't have my life together, right. I'm just figuring it out. So yeah, it's really interesting that you brought up brought this up because it's true, we do have this mindset of, of we, for, we see this illusion and we fall for this illusion really mm -hmm. quickly. Um, and there's probably, I'm sure there's a reason for that, uh, so sociologically and biologically why we would, uh, we, we do this with many other things, like the walk in the elevator and everyone's staring at the opposite wall. Oh, I've seen that. That's such a <laughs> we, cool phenomenon. We even do that, you know? So, I mean, it's yeah. kind of no surprise that I fall for this illusion. But I think, uh, like I said, emotional intelligence is not a vacuum trait. It's a trait that exists in respect to others and socially. So there's lots of things. Uh, shame comes to mind. Like what would be the role of shame in a society? Because I've talked about this before. I think it does have a role and it makes sense. I understand why it would work uh, to correct some, uh, oh, what do you call that? When they're way off of the mean. They're like outliers. Outliers. There yeah. it is. Look at you. Malcolm Gladwell himself. Cool. <laughs> uh, Without, to prevent outliers in a society from taking control. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to shame them because some people are sociopathic and they actually don't have an internal sense of guilt. So uh. without external sources of guilt, you can't, uh, you can't get them to recognize their wrongs. So that, that's one uh, utility of shame. Uh. Other than that, I don't see a whole lot of utilities of shame uh, besides cultural conformity, which has generally been not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's just one of the social factors like the illusions, this is one example of, I know that this is true. Nobody around me has got to figure it out. But I'm practicing my life as if everyone else does. And there's a lot of things we do this with. Like I intellectually understand that, uh, for example, person A loves me. They say it all the time. They do stuff that's really nice to me. But after I made this mistake, I suddenly have forgotten all of that. Even though in, in, a, in a logical way, being removed from my body, my emotions... I know what's true, but I've suddenly forgotten. I think emotional intelligence probably has something to say about that, some, some way yeah. to remember what's true. Yeah, yeah I, think that's, yeah, I think that's profound. Just that emotional intelligence and practicing that would be a better way to remember, just to recognize illusions. I mean, that's part of the study of psychology, right? And, and um, um, what psychiatrists do is they help you break down your mind. They help you break down why you think the way you do, whether it's like past trauma or whether it's just kind of part of who you are, they help you recognize these patterns, whether it's illusions or anxiety or depression and these kinds of cycles in your life that, uh, that you can eventually start practicing to snap out of it. So I think, yeah, I think that's a big part of breaking the illusion is just learning to practice it, learning what it looks like. Because there are emotions that come with it, right, with this illusion that you're talking about. I think a big one that I experience sometimes is just worrying about how I look mm -hmm. on campus. Like, 
It's dumb. But you see I, thousands of young people yeah. staring at you every day. Yeah, it's kind of like a little traumatizing, right? Yeah, You're just like, oh, do I look good? Do I look stupid? Or like, how do I look right now? And the, another thing I started thinking about is how people react to my words and the things that I say. Mm. You know, because sometimes we just respond in so automatic, and to us, it's so normal that like considering the other person's perception doesn't even like cross your mind, mm. right? True. Um, so yeah, I guess I don't know where I was going with that. I have a question about where you're going. Sure. You yeah. said practice emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Could you give us an example of practicing? Absolutely. <laughs> I'll give you a great example. Uh, I care about my dating life, right? And there's been some experiences that I've had recently. And I noticed um, in general, just I guess so listeners know and just like so you guys understand the context. I think about dating a lot. Um, I think the things that I ruminate on are the people I'm interested in, where things would go. Um, and it's not a healthy mindset sometimes, right? Like sometimes I catch myself imagining things and we're not even like really on like a base friendship level. Mm. It's like, what? <laughs> Whether that's like a future relationship with them or whatever else it is. Um, and so just the other day I had to, um, I had asked someone out that I was interested in and it went fine. Um, and it was kind of weird. Anyway, there's a whole lot of story behind that. That's like not really important. <laughs> but what happened is I recognized that I was starting to feel really anxious um, and I was starting to feel worried. I, I couldn't tell you exactly why, but I, I could just recognize that I had right. an emotion. So I took the time. Um, I was at work, so I took the time to just sit in my office, and I took the time to meditate for 10 minutes. I just sat there, and I focused on um, my breath, like how it felt when it was coming in, how it felt when it was going out. Um, and what's fantastic about mindfulness and meditation is you do run away in your brain. That is the part of meditation. The, the expertise in meditation is not that your brain doesn't run away. It's that you can recenter yourself mm-hmm. and that you can recognize that you have run away and can come back to a focal point. Um, and it's actually really cool, the whole science behind breathing, because it's actually connected mm-hmm. to like lots of your anxiety systems. It's connected to your fight or flight system. Yeah, um, so I had this experience of really just like processing. Um, writing something is something for me that really helps me dump and put my thoughts and feelings out. So I meditated for 10 minutes and I dumped my thoughts on paper and I, I felt better. I really did. Um, so I really do believe in the practice of, of meditation and, and practicing emotional intelligence that way of just taking the time when you're experiencing these emotions that you don't understand. That's like step number one, honestly. It's like recognizing that something's going on that you really don't understand and then taking the time to do something about it. Mm. I think that's different for every person. What really gets them to relax and unwind is drastically different for a lot of people. But meditation and mindfulness is scientifically proven solid practice that everyone can do to calm their nervous system. That's a great practical application. Yeah. Uh, I love asking this question, which is why don't people practice emotional intelligence? What are reasons not to? Because, I mean, I don't think a lot of people have actively uh, thought about this. I actually think for the majority of people, this has been actively practiced. Yeah. Very much it's like an emerging field, emotional intelligence. It's very much something that's not been studied. Um, I would say big factor is the lack of discussion about it. Um, Over the last, like, I would say decade or so, we're getting a lot better about talking about emotional health Mm -hmm. and what that means. And with that comes emotional intelligence. Um, So I think just like any other skill... People aren't being taught. You know, if you think about your middle school and elementary school, we didn't practice emotional intelligence. Right. No one taught us to mitigate our emotions when we were stressed. Right. 
you're just put in a corner usually or given some kind of punishment if you act <laughs> out, right? And if you have an emotion, who do you talk to? Nobody, right? Right. So I think that would be a place to start, actually. Especially as um, a man, you know? Yeah. I feel like... There's a bunch of social stigmas. The stigmas, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking time, which is a really kind of ridiculous reason, but I think people think, I'm going to take the time to decompress these thoughts and whatever, but I have this other thing I have to do, you know? Yeah. And they're like, I can't, I, I can't right now take deep breaths for 20 minutes. Because, I mean, th- the stigma of emotional intelligence is... Like when Jack Black and Animal were at the anger management camp in the Muppet movie, <laughs> and they're like meditating, <laughs> and then Jack Black loses his cool and like, like match, yeah. <laughs> I love that scene. I love that entire movie. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's kind of it seems like the, the the critique it receives is this is kind of like a, which kind of like chiropractors. It's kind of yeah. It's kind of like chiropractors. It's it seems like pseudo help. Like yeah. if you can, if you you can't really keep. Maintain. You have to meditate for twenty minutes and write a journal entry to take care of your emotions. You know, like I don't have an extra hour every night to do that. I got yeah. this and whatever. And it's the same kind of critique that uh, really symbolizes, in my opinion, the difference of Western culture and Eastern culture, which yeah has to do go 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 mindset. Go, a go mindset. And I mean, Rewards. ironically, places like Japan and South Korea are very go mindset as well. Uh, but their leisure practices, for example, our leisure practices are actually very stimulating. But their leisure practices, like they are, they work, they go to school much more than we do in those countries that I named. Not all Eastern countries are obviously the same, but from this isolated example, it's a good example because they still have the industrious qualities of the United States. You know, they lead in different industries, they have a booming economy, their uh, societies are geared towards having long, successful careers where they work a lot. Mm-hmm. Being, being overwhelmed with your work, and like, for example, Taking a nap on the job is uh, immensely virtuous in Japan because it means that you worked so hard that you had to sleep while you were Need working. To rest. Like That's it, so interesting. It's like it's like wow, I can't believe you're working that hard that you had to sleep that you fell asleep in the middle of your task. Yeah. But uh, also things like tea ceremonies are what they would do to decompress or other mm-hmm. like very re- more relaxing activities. Uh-huh. That's a totally general statement. It's obviously not applicable. But when you do the overlapping bell curves, best way to display <laughs> different uh, distributions of populations, uh, their activities are less stimulating and s- seem to take uh, yeah. an approach of let's decompress. Let's take a deep breath. And th- that's the statement that I wanted to make, though. Uh, was simply that uh, time is the one of the illusions that holds people back at practicing emotional intelligence. Yeah. The time that it took to do what I explained, it took, just took 15 minutes. And the rest of my night was great. I was a lot more centered. I felt better. Um, and I, I don't... That's something I consistently practice, actually. That's something I will consistently do when I recognize that I'm having an emotion that is triggering my fight-or-flight system and I'm feeling like whoa, I'll do it when I feel those kinds of emotions or when I feel anxious, I'll take the time to Mm -hmm. do that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes my mind is just going so fast that I forget that I'm even trying to practice that right Mm -hmm. then and I just like Mm -hmm. keep going with my life. But when I do genuinely take the time to do that kind of mindfulness and just sit and breathe, it really does work. Time excuse debunked. You have the time. The viewers at home, (laughs) no longer valid excuse. I think... uh... Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think someone like Freud would, would come in and say, what we're saying here is that the id is going to have its time in the daylight. Like, it's... Because he thinks, you know, we've got all these things that when we're not practicing emotional intelligence, we have these these welled-up feelings that become 
neuroses or psychosomatic disorders, or they can be creatively channeled into good things. But um, once again, it's kind of this idea of recognizing. So I, I think when we're being emotionally unintelligent, we're we're trying to you know Freud has what he calls like basically ego is kind of like the self-identifying active self, and then the it is like the, the the urges that are kind of behind the scenes, and you can't always tell where they're coming from like or why. Hunger. Right. The bottom of the iceberg. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, um, you know, like, nobody can stifle their hunger permanently. Right. Right? That's one thing that we recognize. And the healthy way to address it is to give it its time and to have your three meals a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think maybe part of the reason that we struggle to be emotionally intelligent as a society is because we're kind of rebelling as a society against the idea that, well... You're well, it's, it's kind of Keep the idea going. that we <laughs> we want to be entirely self-creating um, beings, kind of. Like, we want to that have the whole array of options us. open to us, and we choose from... Exactly. We mm. choose from... And, and so... That's like the whole girl boss, like, be your best man. Like right. Like, I want to be... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to have the capability to do 16 hours of homework a day. I'm going to do law right. school in two years, you know... That's so true. We do that. Yeah. But what ends up happening is, um, or at least what someone like Freud would say, is it, it turns into a neurosis or a mental disorder, mm-hmm. or it finds its way out. It's always going to find its way out, and it tinges everything you do with stress and anxiety. You know, and Interesting. From, from a purely utilitarian standpoint, I think emotional intelligence is the way to go. Like, um, I, I can think of like last week... There was a day where I had just kind of been going nonstop, and it was like dinner time. And I had a bunch of homework to do, but I kind of just, like the sun was out, and we haven't had a lot of sun recently, so I just went and sat outside in the sunlight, soaking it up, you know, through my eyelids, and listened to Taylor Swift. For <laughs> <laughs> He's a Swiftie. And this is awesome. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I think if I hadn't done that. Paris Tour 2023. And, and I managed to get my homework done and everything, and I think part of it was because I was calm and centered yeah. and focused. And I think if I hadn't done that, my homework would have just taken that extra hour as well. Right. Yeah. Because it would have been stressed. And, and you know, I, I noticed that, like, a lot of times, like, I'll be, like, reading something. And it takes me forever because I'm always thinking about what am I going to do after. Right. Like, <laughs> I can't just, you know, you be there. Yeah, that's mindfulness. And, and so I think emotional intelligence summarized could be recognizing what you can't control. Mm-hmm. Recognizing the so there say there's something that you can't control like you cannot affect the fact that you're gonna feel sad sometimes that you're gonna feel hungry that you're gonna feel these different yeah, things you but you are recognizing the range of ways in which these emotions can manifest and influence your life and right, then choosing yes. from them so like one thing that I'm really really bad at with emotional intelligence is I I'm kind of a just a go go person mm-hmm. and I like don't get good breaks like even you know like even that that i just told you like it wasn't a true break i was listening to taylor swift the whole time so i wasn't whatever thoughts needed to process i was instead listening to her lyrics um so what usually happens for most of my life it takes me like at least an hour to fall asleep Mm -hmm. i'll just lay in bed sometimes a lot longer um just my mind just doesn't stop going and um you know, so that that's gonna find its way out. Yeah, yeah. It's, my body is not gonna allow me to sleep until it's until the the unprocessed thoughts have had right. their time. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. Yeah, which honestly, I'm I okay think... with that. Like with having that be the time, it's just laying in bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but I can't I can't just skip it. 
you know, yeah. that's when it comes out because I haven't allowed it any other time in the day. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you talked about some things that are super important is recognizing that we actually have limits. We have physical and intellectual limits. And with those mindsets that you talked about is kind of ignoring those boundaries. Mm-hmm. Like you talked about having the go, go, go. And like, mm-hmm. Or some people choosing that they're going to do 16 hours of work a day. Um, that's definitely, you know, and that's something super true is sometimes emotions are so hard to understand because they're also a physical reaction. Mm-hmm. Most emotions that we have, I, I can't say this for sure because I don't like have science behind it. But I remember my meditation class, we had this conversation of how the emotions we experience are just a physical reaction. So sometimes the, the line between hunger and an emotion or anger and an emotion starts to get really blurred. Um, so like emotional intelligence where this like really fits in with that kind of... Being right, like why do people like stress down. eat? Right. You know? Like mm-hmm. the emotional intelligence, the, the various emotions we feel are very often associated in some, some way with a basic biological need. Freud is back. Right. Yeah. He, thinks all, he thinks that, you know, your sexuality is also going to come out right. as hunger and, and whatever else. Yeah. Or that, or that hunger, you know, that they'll tinge yeah. each other. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about um, just like needing a break, I thought of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And a big part of emotional intelligence is actually having like your basic needs met to really start. Mm-hmm. Um, they're otters. I actually learned this the other day. Um, otters will be charismatic as a species and they will have personalities and do kinds of things unless their basic needs aren't met. Hmm. So the otters that you see in the zoo, they're super happy and healthy because they've got the basic needs. They've got food, water, Mm -hmm. shelter. But um, when they don't have those, they tend to be more primal and they tend to be more, you know, needs focused on what's missing in their life. And I think it's the same way for us as humans. If we don't recognize what basic needs are missing, like lack of sleep or getting food or just actually taking a break and letting our mind have a rest, then we start not to like revert, but those emotions and those kinds of feelings are so strong that we start to kind of, I don't know, experience the negative side yeah. effects, I guess. Which absolutely makes sense. Uh, if, if your basic needs aren't taken care of, you, you kind of have to let your primal body take care of itself because your cells are way better at keeping you alive generally than your mind is your mind is better at it sometimes uh but your your cells are better at it other times and that that's the time when it your mind is your composed of cells <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what i'm saying still the i'm making a distinction here yeah uh okay the, so i have one thing to say about what josh said one thing to say about what you said uh josh i think josh's theory of what needs uh, at the bottom of the iceberg what we ignore everything at the expense of it manifesting in a negative in a way that we in do not control in undesirable ways right yeah. and i think this is a result of the technological revolution uh we believe we are in control of much more than we are thanks to the illusion of the tools that we have access to and they give mm-hmm. us and not to mention the social aspect is a separate layer which it works in tandem with technology but that we can now observe people accomplishing amazing things i mean i could watch I could watch a 10-year-old be better at me than me at every single thing I can imagine. Yeah. Drawing a painting, play, play, playing the piano, everything else on YouTube right now in the space of an hour. Mm-hmm. And I would realize I'm 21 years old and there's a 10-year-old that's better than me at every single thing. You know? And I could, I could easily do that. Imagine how demoralizing that <laughs> thought experiment would be. Uh, but I remember talking to my fiance and I think she's very emotionally intelligent. And... Uh, she said, 
it's kind of at the end of this conversation that what if that she was like, but your best isn't perfect. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Which maybe that's a thought that's occurred to everybody else. This is just not a moment for me. But I was always under the impression that if I'm making mistakes, it's because I wasn't trying hard enough. And like the thing that made Jesus unique was that he actually gave it his best. And that everybody else just doesn't try their best. Because I think we use the word best so arbitrarily. Like, well, at least you gave it your best shot. Like, for example, I ran cross country. I don't think anybody gives it their best. They'd, they'd all do a little bit better if a cheetah was chasing them, you know? Like, they'd all do a little bit better if there was some canine chasing them. Like, I know that they didn't give their actual best because they all could have ran faster by the end. So, like, when does anyone actually do their best? When you're doing your assignment, you could focus more if you were pop two Adderalls and, you know, like there's so many things you could do to, to actually, like actually do better. perform better. Like, and so well, I was like, and that's the so whole problem is our societal ideal is the perpetually, optimally performing animal. Like we're machines. Yeah. The you're, cheetah that never stops sprinting. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's capitalist, it's utilitarian, it's about maximum production at all times. Mm-hmm. And we have this ideal and we might not actually think it's possible and it's not like it's an idea that we consciously chose either it just kind of was it sold to us but i don't think you know most people know that it's not actually possible to be this you know fully sprinting um completely busy insanely productive person all the time but we think that you know it's kind of like having something chasing you like we have this idea and we think that we won't get there, but we'll get a lot further than if we actually like told ourselves something realistic. It's kind of like this really bad analogy that I've heard before, which is like shoot for the moon and you'll hit a star or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Um, Even though stars are actually I think further. it's the other way around. Shoot for the stars and you'll land on the moon. <laughs> that would make more sense. I hope that's not what actually Stars are further than the moon. I know. That's why I hated the analogy. <laughs> because they're also much bigger. Yeah, um, it's like you idiot. But anyways, the, I, so... And I don't know. I think... There are, there's a whole lot of, you know, we have a false societal ideal. I think we also have, like, I love the Maslow's hierarchy of need things. I think, I don't actually know a whole lot about the, the science or the writings behind this, but just, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of the pyramid here, and, you know, so, so, you know, a pyramid at the base is bigger than at the top, and from bottom to top, you've got, like, physiological, safety, belonging, and love, esteem, cognitive, aesthetic, self-actualization, and then at the very peak, transcendence. Ooh, yeah. And I think yeah. that yeah, we this could to also be a time. Base. Well, not only that, but we, I, think we, I think this is pretty accurate, a pretty accurate time division, you know, like a, a division of how we spend the time of our lives. Life. You have to life spend spirit. the most time with, and, and maybe it's not quite as true, as it was in the past, because of our modern society, we don't spend as much time on physiological and safety needs, maybe. Like, we, we have our food ready-made, so and you can almost, like, our, our problems in society almost just begin beyond those two, because most people have enough to eat. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, of course, but... In American society. Most American problems, I think, begin with this third one, which is belonging and love. And we try and substitute, and we try and find counterfeit belonging and love in... And esteem in cognitive exertions or in aesthetic, you know, in, in entertainment in other areas. And, and also, I, I just think we have this idea that you're going to be, you're going to be transcendent all the time. Yeah, but I not, think, it's not but it's, it's not the nature of joy because joy is experienced by contrast. Yeah. And, um, 
in a in a physiological sense, it's really a release of tension. Is is what a lot of pleasure is, and so there has to be tension. Um, yeah. So I think you know we're going to spend the most time getting those basic needs of belonging and love, societal interaction, and 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 basic biological needs, eating food, and I don't know. If you're probably not going to feel transcendent all the time. Yeah. But if it's you focus possible. on feeling transcendent all the time, you'll never feel transcendent. But if you focus on things in the right hierarchy, then you'll have your periodic transcendence that will permeate everything else that you do. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Josh. Um, something that I thought of while you were talking, Isaac, is there's best in the terms of performance, and there's best in terms of integrity. And those get mixed so quickly. We often don't think of our best in terms of integrity. Um, and I actually would think that's another solution to emotional intelligence, how to practice better um, emotional intelligence, is realizing that um, your performance is going to be different every single day. Um, but your heart's in the right place, or your efforts are in the right place. Mm-hmm. That is something that like I did have a lot of life experience with, and I've just learned that... Um, it's not that every, every day is going to be different. I have no choice over that. I really don't have control over that. Mm-hmm. Even in emotions. Emotions are involuntary. Mm-hmm. The majority of our thoughts and our emotions, we don't have control over. Right. Um, so I think that's something that I actually really care a lot about is that people focus on their best. I see this all the time. I've, t- I've talked to a lot of my friends about this, and I've struggled with this myself too. It's just best. their best does not come from their performance. That's really, you can't measure it based on your performance. You really can't, unless you're a professional athlete and no one's professional at life, <laughs> right? That's just like so unrealistic. Like your best comes from the integrity of your heart and the fact that you're trying, the fact that you even showed up to work, the fact that you even showed up to school, that you decided to get out of bed. Right. But know, once that's again, a very that's big not scale. externally measurable and society It's hard to receive any validation for that. Yeah. Right. Society it's insists really, that yeah. we have to measure and categorize everything. And, and you know... All of our, you know, even like words like best, all of our adjectives are corrupt. If you say best, people think of productivity. There's a conversation, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, uh, when you say success, it means you make a lot of money. Right. A man's right. worth is right. his credit score, mm-hmm. you know? Not the credit yeah. score. <laughs> <laughs> but so again, like something that I think it would be super valuable for our society, my mom is working for this nonprofit right now called Everybody Matters, and she goes to middle school and helps these kids um, have a gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. And she has them rank when they come in, how is their day going? Mm-hmm. And I think if we were to integrate those kinds of things, I would have loved having that as a kid. Mm-hmm. There are so many emotions that, you know, that we just don't understand. And I think, I don't know, just an overall sense of patience of just internalizing that mm-hmm. you're going to, you're, you're just going to fail. Like it's going to happen. Right. Okay. So I understand with my whole time point, I think I understand what I was really trying to say, but I, I didn't understand it until now. Uh, and I want to preface this with what I want to say about William's previous comment, which I think the, the, the philosophical uh, contradiction here is what determines the good life, which is almost always what it boils down to, which uh, uh, I think, I, I just realized why I think emotional intelligence has uh, some type of a negative connotation to some people and why it's difficult to practice is because we hear in society, I'm giving it my best, I'm trying my best. But then society looks at them and says, but you're not being a productive member of society. Like your best isn't qualifying right now. And you're saying, but you can't validate my degree of emotional intelligence. You can't tell me that the way I'm processing things is not 
to the to my utmost integrity, because you can't you can't validate that integrity. There's no there's no metric by which you can do that. At least not with today's technology. And so then there's this conflict of, well, you're supposed to be this this you're supposed to have some type of societal utility. I think this is why maybe the perfectionist. Uh, Culture has emerged in various societies, including our own faith community, I think, which is, okay, I come to, uh, you know, I come to my temple session, and everybody saw me, you know, at the bar late, late at night drinking alcohol, for example, or doing X, Y, Z, and then I come to the temple the next day. Uh, People would have such a problem with that. They'd have such what a problem with doing? that. They'd be like, what are you doing? And the guy would say, but look, I'm trying my best. I got these different problems. I'm dealing with this emotional trauma from my past. You don't know anything about what I'm going right. through. And then the other people say, you, there's no way you can prove that to me. And there's a standard we have. And you have to have some type That's of so disi- <laughs> utility of discipleship. So there's this big conflict with the self-report versus the per- uh, perceived report. Uh, speaking of Maslow, Abraham Maslow says, if you plan on being anything less than you are capable of being, you will probably be unhappy all the days of your life. Which I think is a, a fear that like is really crippling to me. Uh, that I feel actually makes me less emotionally intelligent because when I say when I hear less than you're capable of being, I think of the uh, and this is probably my main problem with emotional intelligence is that I've mapped and scripted my life already. When I was a kid, I mapped and scripted my life. You know, this is where I'll be at this time. This is what I'll be doing at this time. These are the kind of mistakes I'll probably make. These are the kind of mistakes I'm not allowed to make. You know. And when I, when I didn't read the script correctly, when I made a mistake, I realized, whoa, I've, dr- I've diverged from the best that I had in store for myself. And I feel in a way I've actually diverged past my best integrity. Like no longer can I self-report myself as the kind of guy who has a high integrity, who does his best. Because the person that was supposed to do his best, he doesn't exist anymore, you know? He's made a mistake. That's like an innate feeling you have. Are yeah, you saying that's how you currently feel. Uh, like I think that's mindset I think that's a mindset that I have sometimes, and it makes it really difficult to recover because, for the same reason that I think capitalism kind of uh, crucifies the guru, you know, and say, "Oh, that's great that you spend twenty years in a mosque and, you know, hum with your hands on your knees, but you haven't done anything for these other people. You haven't done anything for society. You have to plug in, like you have to contribute. You have to contribute, and your self-report of you being self-actualized isn't enough for you to, in some cases, be saved. Right? Like we'd say, your salvation requires this type of work. You know, we have a we have the kind of language. How do you describe someone in other traditions that attends their meetings and stuff? You call them a devout Christian, right? Someone who's devout, whose faith is rich and deep. But here we call them active members. So like, it's the kind of person who does things. And we don't pray to God. We say our prayers. So the kind of language that we use is indicative of an action-based, which is, you know, okay, I'm really going all over the place. But uh, when, when uh, you, the United States is founded by Puritans in the past, and we have this huge supposedly Protestant foundation, the industriousness is ingrained in this Protestant country, you know? The like, Protestant work ethic. Yes, the Protestant work ethic. It's what we're <clears> known <throat> for. We're the people who we work. We, and it's, the American it's, dream. It's, yes, it's the American dream, and that's a total Protestant residue. And it's very antithetical to a lot of Eastern traditions where the detachment from, you know, for, uh, to find nirvana, um, the Buddha suggests 
that you have to get rid of your attachment to all things, mm -hmm. that you should let go of right. your things. And the source of all pain is an attachment. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you had this expectation and that expectation was severed is the cause of your pain. And this uniting with the universe, being like water, like Bruce Lee says, you know, takes the form of every container right. it's placed in. That is true ascension. But then uh, in an Abrahamic religion, it's to defy the natural man, to escape out of this shell, to be the active force in your natural world, uh -huh. and that you should suffer for good causes because everything will be made up in the end. That's what Abraham promises. That's what he promised to Islam. That's what he promised to the Jews. That's what he promised to the Christians. Is one day, even if you suffer for, you should suffer a lot for all these great causes because it's virtuous when you suffer like that and all the suffering gets made up in the next life. Uh -huh. So those things like just, you go back thousands of years and you've already found this huge divide in why I think these different cultures have <clears throat> developed these ideas, which we've ascended far past emotional intelligence at this point. <laughs> but uh, I think it is still related that the emotional intelligence of today is looked look down upon. Well, and it's totally like you said, it really comes down to a fundamental question of what is the good life? Mm -hmm. What is good? What is our ideal? What are we striving for? Because, you know, different societies have different ideas of what happiness is. Finland consistently ranks as the happiest country on earth in the world. But they, and this is based on kind of self-reporting, um, but from having lived in Scandinavia, my perception is there's, there's kind of a, more of an association of happiness with contentment, with kind of a calm kind of happiness, whereas somewhere like Zimbabwe, for example, you might have like a very boisterous happiness. Mm -hmm. um, people in Scandinavia are not very boisterous. And then in America, we, we you know, like you're saying, it's very much about production and about, um, you know, it kind of comes back to this, like we have, our, our system is based on, a, on an idea of property from, like this is what Locke would say and also what Marx would say is that we, um, you know, Locke says we have property in ourselves and then we, we mix, we obtain more property by mixing our labor with it. And kind of this idea is that like the, the most successful person will be the, the person who's amassed the most property to themselves by the right. end of their lives, who has the have. largest estate and the largest inheritance to bequeath on their descendants. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Eastern religions can, they'll spend three decades in a monastery and it's about internal personal development, which is actually more in line with our own scriptures as well, because, you know, you can't take these things with you, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. where put your energy where moth doth not corrupt mm -hmm. and, you know, thieves don't come and steal, like what you can actually take with you beyond the veil and beyond mm -hmm. death. Um, I thought of this quote by Lao Tzu, um, which is kind of related to attain knowledge add things every day to attain wisdom subtract things every day and you could kind of draw a parallel of that like to attain societal worth add things every day to attain emotional intelligence or true worth or true happiness subtract things every day mm -hmm. um, so it's unavoidably going to require us to, to decide and it's, it's kind of a hard idea like you know we have to decide between cultures or which is better, but um, it does require us to have a conception of the good. What is the good? What are we? And we have to decide what's best. Mm -hmm. That's what um, all the most important questions come down to is something like that. Mm -hmm. We have to decide what our goal is. Yeah.
and recognize where it's probably gone mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah. So I think what we a lot of what we just talked about is the value that emotional intelligence has in cultures. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of what we've kind of discussed. Yeah. What would you say is the goal of emotional intelligence? Um, I would kind of think back to its definition. The goal of emotional intelligence is to be able to understand either what you're feeling or understand that you're feeling something that you don't understand and have more, well this might even be a Western ideal, but I was going to say have a more proactive, um, and not, not let it take over. So I think that would be like, a Western ideal would be to be proactive about it and do something to kind of get rid of it, but an Eastern ideal might more be like, just to let it exist and let it be. I mean, that is a big part of it. Um, yeah. That's what Mother Mary said to me. <laughs> Just let it be. <laughs> uh, okay, so now I can, these are kind of some weird questions that I thought of, but there is, and then I want to get into one of my main questions. Uh, there's a uh, possibility that people high in emotional intelligence are less creative. And I disagree with that. <laughs> what? Uh, I, I see... Well, that just seemed intuitively wrong, I guess. He, here's, I where, well. he, here's where I understand this coming from. Uh, if the dark side of the iceberg is processed... What do you mean? Uh, when the dark side of the iceberg being my... Uh, like your underlying... My resentment, my fear, my okay. embarrassment, so okay. on and so forth. If it's processed adequately, then you just become a, uh, a non-angsty adult who understands why they... Why those feelings came so it's in just mind. the top of the iceberg. And then, yeah, then, but if, you know, for example, no great emo song has been made by processing the emotions, for example, you know? <laughs> like, that, that song is clearly... That's uh, true. There is an idea that, like, all great artists are troubled. They're the sufferers, you know, the troubled artists. I mean, like, like... if you've seen the movie Whiplash, for example. Oh, I love the movie right? Whiplash. You've gotta watch Whiplash. You've gotta watch Whiplash. Exactly. It's like, it's the tortured... Not an you know, not sponsored. <laughs> or someone like Nietzsche is this way too. Like, you have to be having all this pain and all these crazy things happening in right. order to be able to make great productions of human culture mm -hmm. and and. You don't think that's true? Do you think it's true to a degree? I think it requires. So to be this great creative kind of person, I think it requires one innate talent. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, it requires opposition in your life, tension in your life, experience, all kinds of experiences. Um, I don't know. I'm always I, starting to agree with you. Uh, because well, I, think, I think, again, it's, it's the question of do you want to be... Uh, do you want to be tortured but a genius or do you want to be happy and complacent but I mean, not complacent happy and yes just like neutral this is the this of is course. the tail side of the coin of the capitalist argument which and this is, is the visceral capitalist response well, I would say to what we're talking yeah, about the, here today the is. capitalist the, the response to the number one emotional intelligence is number one I'm going for utility in my life. I maximize my property. I maximize my things. Maximize I maximize my, my whatever. It's, it's kind of a hedonistic pursuit, which it totally still exists. But there's also the aesthetic pursuit of life, which is the highest good is the amount of experiences I can encounter, the type of art, the amount of wonder that I feel, the experiences that I gather, which I feel like to a large degree I subscribe to. Like, I feel like that is why I naturally gravitate towards the aesthetic pursuit of life. And in that pursuit, being the tortured artist sounds way cooler than being like the mentally sound person who like 
just lives a regular. Uh, I wouldn't even say a regular life, the, but you know, who actually considers the lilies and doesn't just deforest them and step on <laughs> yeah. them in their path to power. Well, I'm, okay. Well, I would argue that that's part of the emotional intelligence process. Like, I think someone that's emotionally unintelligent would would freaking bulldoze the lilies. Mm-hmm. That they would move past their emotion. But I would argue that someone, like as far as artists go, that are emotionally intelligent, would channel that and realize and right. experience it. Right? That's how they write these songs. Is they let themselves experience mm-hmm. the emotion. And it comes out in words and lyrics and song and mm-hmm. art and dance. So it is a form of emotional intelligence to create the art. But yeah. there are, you're right. There are things that we would forgo by if everyone was emotionally intelligent. We would probably have a lower GDP, but we would be happier. Mm-hmm. We might not have emo and 21 pilots, but, <laughs> but we well, wouldn't need them. I think we still would, though. But, but people I, are going to go through hard things. People are going to go through things that are extremely difficult and like that are going to make them really emotional and really hard. And that's when they're... You know, that's when these artist expressions are going to come. I, I do, I do Maybe. think that's... I mean, I see what he's saying. And if, if at the end of Picasso's opus, uh, he's like, wow, I feel so much better now. Then that would be an example of emotional intelligence. I started with this thing. I don't understand it. Let's grab my easel, you know, and get my paints, and let's just start going. But then, where would his motivation be to keep going? Exactly. And it's I mean, like, here's the, when Pic- go no, here's what Picasso did. No he made he made a hor- he, made, he made this painting, and everyone rejects it. And he's like, "This is horrible." And then he cuts his ear off, and he's like, "I hate my life." I mean, it, the, the the fact was, the easel captured the dark side of his iceberg. But yeah. he did not. He did not become more emotionally intelligent because of it. And, okay, here's, here's uh, the underlying principle of this, which I think is really fascinating, that um, being emotionally intelligent means you're an adult, and being unemotionally intelligent means you're a child. I think children mm-hmm. do have emotionally intelligent p- parts of them, but I think, for example, I don't, we, don't, we can't kill the child completely. Yeah. The child is the person who, who's giggly, and says ridiculous things with his friends. The child is the person who does these creative things, who can role play really well. You know, I think like actors, for example, they have this child in them that they refuse to kill, you know? Uh, Heath Ledger. Like, Heath Ledger is the person who, who, I don't think he processed the Joker, right? Like, his role in the Joker is, he just let it completely overtake him. It, in fact, increased this part of the the dark side of his... uh, his, his iceberg. You know, he, he uh, lived in solitary confinement in a hotel, for example, for months prior to his role in preparation. Just, just like pacing, you know, it's a method acting, you know, which I don't think is in any way the, pro- the healthy process in, of the emotions. Uh, I, would just, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, as we can <laughs> see from healthy. Heath Ledger, Ledger's example, it was uh, remarkably not healthy for his uh, psychology. Uh, but what he produced was one of the greatest, you know, method roles we've seen. It, yeah. was, it was the kind of art that people watching are just completely transfixed by and we can't believe that was a real human. We can't believe that wasn't actually a Joker. Like That was a, just a regular guy who yeah. transformed himself. And so that display of art might have come at the expense. I think a lot of people like this immortalization. Like, man, I want to be the guy who's so tortured that he makes this opus and these amazing things and then, you know, fades off in this, you know, Machiavellian, Machiavellian, you know, whoosh, you know, like this, this crazy villainous death, you know, have you ever wanted to be the main character in a Greek tragedy, for example? Like some would say no. I in some ways would say yes. Like being Hamlet would be kind of cool. Like he's 
everything goes wrong for him. He suffers tremendously, but man, he lived a beautiful life. Like mm-hmm. that was so fascinating to read, and it was deep and complex and rich. Yeah. And I think that's probably the angsty 17-year-old that still lives within me, probably right. well, making that assertion. But <laughs> Again here, it's just about, like, what's your idea of what's the happiest person? Is it Gandhi or is it Genghis Khan, right? Right. Um, someone yeah. might argue that this person um, who, who lived a tortured life but created this great thing, that they got what they wanted, that mm-hmm. that, because they're going to be remembered for that great thing now. They're going to be famous for it. Right. Um, but I don't even think that's necessarily always what those kind of people like are looking for. Like, for them, happiness is a total subcomponent of a good life. It's not the whole. Being meaningful, producing something interesting that brings people closer to wonder and things that are interesting and complex and deep experiences, that's what makes a rich life. And that can obviously be destructive when societies are composed with all these different people that think all these different things are what composes a good life. It's harder to get along. So we like to culturally refine things. Say This is unacceptable to think that your life is meaningful when you, when you do this task or have this uh, narrative play out. Yeah. So it, it does get complex. But, yeah. And I'm, I'm not necessarily making the argument against emotional intelligence because I think uh, even if that was your pursuit, there is some degree of emotional intelligence that still has to be mastered and implemented mm-hmm. in that kind of life. But I do see how some people might let things stick around and try not to process everything so that they can, I guess, kind of spice up their life. Yeah. Well, I think what we're talking about is also along the lines of just figuring out how do you want to use it as a tool, right? Because you definitely don't want your life to be run by anxiety. No one wants to live that way. Right. No one would choose to live that way. But I can also agree that people would, you know, maybe let those emotions stick around because it is a creative source. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah. That's interesting. I think it should be a tool that we use a lot more. I do agree with your question, though. Like, we might debate whether or not 21 Pilots in particular would be something <laughs> that would still exist. But I think if there would be... Super what if no one broke up with Taylor Swift, There right? would still be certain... <laughs> yeah. She was able to process it and just be like, okay, I'm fine. <laughs> there would still be certain... You know songs for Josh to listen to. I know, To right? wind down. <laughs> I need her to be single. <laughs> I need her to go through breakups. Um... <laughs> There would be whatever, understood broadly, there would be certain human accomplishments that would probably not be produced by emotionally intelligent people. Yeah. But you have to ask yourself whether it's something you actually want. Yeah. I think also that question, though, is based on the perception that everyone would be perfectly emotionally intelligent, mm-hmm. which is not going to happen. That's of not going to happen yeah. either. Yeah. Right. So I think even if everyone were to practice emotional intelligence to the 9,000, everyone would meditate before they go to bed and like relax and have like a good routine. We would still have these people. Like, I, it would not eliminate yeah. the amount of, you know, I think the angsty things would still be there. I think Taylor mm-hmm. Swift would still get broken up about with and still be pissed about it. You know? <laughs> right. And still get our songs. So, yeah. That's why, that's why I kind of, I guess, that's why I kind of disagree with the question. Because in my mind, there's no way that we're all going to be perfect. Like, mm-hmm. it's still going to exist. Mm-hmm. But I just think we really need this tool to be able to manage our lives better and to be able to, I, I think it's, I think it's crucial to enjoying life. Okay, so my last question is really about the nature of... It's about the nature of a lot of things. I'll just express it. So you can take it where you want. And this will probably be like the last thread that we pull before we uh, give some of our final thoughts. Okay. But um, So in psychology, uh, let's say we're in a therapy session. 
and we're not <laughs> <laughs> this is free right i have been using will as my therapist in some in some way during this conversation but uh a therapist i feel like has liberty to say whatever kind of to, to lay on any types of constructs in order to get you to process your emotion and we i would call this a porcupine truth which i've expressed a lot of times is uh, the porcupine truth is in Africa. I probably explain this literally every episode of the podcast, <laughs> but I'll do it again. Uh, in Africa, and I don't know if this is actually true, but it's it's kind of a way to illustrate the point. Uh, they tell their kids that porcupines shoot their quills, but that's not true. Porcupines don't shoot their quills. But you tell your kids that that way they don't touch the porcupines. They don't even get close to them because they're they're under the assumption that porcupines shoot their quills. Uh, another way to express it is every gun is loaded, which we say all the time in, for example, shooting classes and stuff like that. We say, remember, treat every gun like it's loaded. It's not true that every gun is loaded. Lots of guns aren't. And if you pulled the trigger and pointed at someone, you wouldn't kill them with most guns because they're not loaded. But if you treat all of them like they are, then you don't make that mistake. Right. And so it's a useful extrapolation it's a useful uh construct but it's not true and so these it becomes really nuanced i'm going to explain why this is related to emotional intelligence in a second but it's nuanced because we use truths like this sometimes for negative reasons like we we construct things that aren't true but they actually aren't helpful for example if you're a porcupine researcher but you believe that they shot their quills it'd be much more difficult to get the porcupine <laughs> so yeah. to actually get to know the truth about the porcupine it would be more difficult with this untrue truth. Uh, and Voltaire says, if you could make men believe absurdities, you can make them commit atrocities. And uh, that idea also has to do with this. Like, if, you, if you're capable of teaching the civilization things that are kind of true but not really true, uh, then it's not good. So I'm... Uh, and then you have a self-help book who says, remember, these are the 10 steps. These are the fake truths that I made. Number one, uh, what's a fake truth that you might say in a self-help book? Everybody uh, has the capacity to be a millionaire, for example. You know, maybe that is true. I don't know. But, uh, you can, but not everybody at once. Not everybody at once. <laughs> uh, but basically, you, you make this foundation of things that aren't really true or you use uh, – I mean, the parables are essentially an extrapolation of this, this idea mm -hmm. that I, I'm not going to say, even if you are the discriminated against population in your community, uh, you should still treat everybody. Uh, you, uh, if you have a discriminated uh, population in your society, don't think that they're less charitable than you because sometimes they actually act in a morally superior way. So remember to be humble. That's not what Jesus said. He gave us... Uh, the the Good Samaritan instead, because that layer of extrapolation, despite it being a fictional tale, actually teaches you the truths that you needed to know. Right? He protected you, and he taught you in a way that's probably uh, more genius. You know, we use literature, for example, to ex express really difficult thoughts in narrative form. That's how humans think, anyways. I'm using a long. Uh, I've said a lot to try to illustrate this, but in emotional intelligence, I feel like there's probably some constructs that we use that aren't necessarily true, but that help us get to a better place. Uh, and I'm still not exactly sure how I feel about that. I feel like 
even mm-hmm. the ends do not justify the means all the time. I don't think you can I don't think you should be allowed to tell yourself any kind of truth in order to get you to a better place. Mm-hmm. I don't know if whatever helps you, you know, get over this problem, just try it out. Mm-hmm. I'm still not completely sold that that's always an acceptable route forward. Right. But I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that's an emotionally intelligent thing to do because then you're giving yourself a false construct to believe in. Mm-hmm. So I would not say I would agree that's like not the move. So I think, uh, for example, uh, religious practices, a lot of people would say, aren't those just false constructs that you're using to get to a better place? Like we would say, well, that's kind of preposterous because we think our constructs are true. But there's thousands of other schools of belief, and you would probably disagree that all of them, with all of them. <laughs> You'd probably say, well, all of those are wrong, and ours is the only one that's right. And so we're uh, morally obligated to follow our system of belief uh, because it's a true construct, but everyone else is under a false uh, presupposition. And so then, so this is where I think this has modern application. Do you say to the Buddhists, this construct you believe in is false? You know, this nirvana ah. place, this, this place of so, this reincarnation thing you're believing in, it's not true. Or is it better to say, um, it's not, I don't think it's true, but it sure is helpful. Yeah. It's like every gun is loaded. Right. So keep it up because it's bringing you somewhere good. So what you're getting at with, with emotional intelligence and comparing it to this kind, of, this kind of thing that you're talking about is I think you're getting at the point that it's going to be different for everybody. Mm. Is that, would you yes, agree? Yes, that's a great way to say it. Yeah. I, I think so, yeah. And I think emotional intelligence will look different for everybody. The way Josh processes is different from the way I process. If I put on T-Swift, I'd probably get a little, a little anxious. <laughs> I, I'm not a big T-Swift fan. <laughs> no offense. But, um, uh, yeah, and I think emotional intelligence is more about the journey of understanding how you operate as a human, mm-hmm. how, you're, how, you're, how you experience emotions and how... Um, you know, right, there's there's a baseline. A lot of people experience anger and fear the same way. It's very characteristic, mm-hmm. and you can describe it very similarly physically for each person. Um, but we're all so unique that I really do think that the way we would process and that the way we would work through and manage and express our emotions in a way that is appropriate, i.e. practicing emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. would be different for everybody. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm a super direct person. If I'm having emotions that I need to talk to someone and I have questions about it, I ask them and, I'm, and I tell them, look, I feel X, Y, Z because of this. Mm-hmm. And then I ask my question, is this true? Or do I have a like, not great perception? Or am I missing something? Mm. You know, um, we've, I've learned about this before. There's like left-handed and right-handed communicators. I won't spend a ton of time on this because it's not very relevant, but people that are, I can't remember if it's left or right, but basically the polar opposites are this. There are people that care more about their relationships with the person they communicate, and there are people that care more about just communicating directly. Mm-hmm. Right? So someone who cares more about the relationships, if they need a ride and they call someone, they'll be like, oh, uh, what are you doing right now? Are you busy? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this an inconvenient time? Well, this kind of unfortunate thing happened, and it, like they start mm-hmm. to tell a story because mm-hmm. they don't want to be a detriment to the relationship mm-hmm. because they have a need. Whereas someone else that is on the opposite will be like, hey, I miss my bus. I'm stranded. Do you have time to come pick me up? Mm-hmm. Um, neither one is like superior than the other. That's not what I'm getting at. My point is, just as those are different in communication, I think emotional intelligence mm-hmm. varies from person to person. Interesting. Um, in how it's expressed and how it operates. 
And it, it's not a religious system, but I think there are implications for what you just said in religious systems. Like, mm-hmm. how, uh, how, how, how standardized does religion have to be? I mean, does that depend on the rights of the religion? Uh, like we, we talked about recently that religion seems much more standardized where it's, there's many more practice, practicers, what do you call this? many more members of that religion, you know? Practitioners. Practitioners, that's what it is. There's many more practitioners of the, of the religion in area. It, it, it becomes more standardized. That happens with everything. I mean, uh, that that's why you go to tutoring rather than just go to your lecture. You go to lecture because the teaching becomes much less standardized. It becomes individual to you. And it's the same truth as being taught, but they're being taught in a way res- in responsive to your questions, curiosities, and whatever. So you could still have one truth, you know, this physics lecture, but it can be taught and expressed in many different ways for different individuals, despite it being the same truth. Uh, so I think, I think that's a good response. In emotional intelligence, we can't expect it to be completely standardized. Uh, Not at all. And I don't think it's, it's militantly standardized. I think some religious, uh, in some religious systems, it is militantly standardized in a way that could be detrimental to the people. It, it neglects to give them a personal interpretation. But like we've talked about earlier, there is certainly a balance. There's a dissonance here, which is uh, I am trying to be emotionally intelligent and I validate my own practice, right? Mm-hmm. And there's I'm trying to be emotionally intelligent and I need to improve my practice through exposure to the practice of others. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be in a little bit of contradiction because uh, the self-validation in the same thing as a religious sense, I need to know Jesus for myself, you know, irrespective of organizations, the person, the, you know, the things of other people and whatever. And there's also, there is a standard path. There is a way, you know, and the way to understand that way is through observation and interaction with other people practicing and trying to come to Jesus at the same time. Mm-hmm. And those butt heads a lot. Like you're like, man, but I believe this, but maybe this is true. And sometimes it would be better for you to give up on the personal beliefs that you had because it would bring you closer to Jesus. It would bring you closer to nirvana, whatever this great goal of self-actualization that you have for yourself. And there's other times where retaining your personal belief would probably be better too. Mm -hmm. And making that distinction is nearly impossible and something that I don't think anyone gets right 100% of the time. Yeah, I agree. Well... What do you think about some concluding remarks? Do you want to start, Josh? Sure. Um, I just want to throw out... Let's see here. This is a quote from Michael Crichton. You may know him as the author of Jurassic Park, but he also wrote lots of other things. Um, that was awesome. Because I've been thinking about this... Um, Did not expect the Crichton quote. I've <laughs> been thinking about this... Uh, just how we're talking about like different conceptions of happiness, essentially. Um, I think this is something that's probably universally true across all conceptions of happiness. He says, as a rule, nothing you lack now will make you happy when you get it. Mm-hmm. As a rule, nothing side. you lack now, it doesn't say happier, but nothing, if you're not happy, nothing you lack now will make you happy when you get it. Um, huh. I think that's something to keep in mind when trying to decide what your ideal is, what your, who your idol is, what your model of the kind of human, the accomplished, content, happy human being at the end of their life, what does that look like? 
I think this is important to keep in mind, and that's all I would say. Mm. Do you want me to go? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would say, concluding remarks, I just would absolutely advocate that everybody, we had, we had this conversation earlier about best, um, and it has become a guiding principle in my life to understand that my best looks different every single day. It's helped me have patience with my grades, when I don't do as well, especially in the degree that I'm in. Um, it's helped me have patience when my interpersonal relationships don't go right. It's helped me have patience when I see that my flaws are clearly on the whiteboard and there's a nice like track of how everything went wrong and what I said and that did wrong and, and all that. Um, this concept of, I think everyone should start by understanding that best is about their heart and not about their performance. Um, and I would absolutely advocate that everybody try and start to understand their emotional intelligence and just, just start with the practice of being patient. And when you have something that you don't understand or you do understand, something's going on of just taking the time to sit and, and be with it. Let yourself experience it. Let yourself process it and find ways that, you know, whether it's art, find whatever ways that make you emotionally intelligent for yourself. Yeah. I think that would be what I would most desire for everyone to start working on. Because for me, it's, it's helped my life. And I'm not there yet either, but it's definitely made an impact on my life. I want to summarize what I've learned because I, I feel like I've learned so much from this episode. Uh, we have natural limitations. Your best isn't perfect. And by dealing with the things that your life requires of you, you can actually live maybe a more fulfilled, meaningful, and happy life. Uh, I've learned that, just what we recently talked about, uh, the same truth can be applied in many different ways and interpreted in many different ways and remain its and maintain its validity. And I think uh, just this idea of exist, existing... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the idea of understanding, being patient with yourself, just like being a human in the moment. It's very, very, very simple, but I think it's really beautiful. Like, And we've discussed a lot of reasons why maybe that's difficult. And I think by, by me vocalizing and understanding why, this, why it might be difficult for me to be a human in the moment, I understand how to better be a human in the moment. Like I understand why I hadn't practiced that as frequently earlier. And uh, we really appreciate, appreciate your time. Well, yeah, glad to be here. Well, everybody, that was the TMI Podcast. Take us how we are, and we'll catch you next time.